Blockchain Insider. Hello, Blockchain people. Hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Mauricio Magaldi, and this is episode 199. I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Catherine Gu, head of CBDC and protocols at Visa. How are you doing today, Catherine? Doing well. I'm fascinated by your studio background, which is very cool, but um, also very excited for today's topic. So, <laughs> I hope we can get a little bit of the clip out in the socials so they can see our new studio. So today's topic is real-world assets, the so-called RWAs. We'll dive into what RWAs are, the use cases of tokenized RWAs that we're seeing today, pros and cons of bringing RWAs on-chain, and where this emerging market is headed. To do that, we're not alone. We're joined by two amazing guests. Welcome to the show, Justin Schmidt, President and COO at Ondo. How are you doing today, Justin? It's great to have you on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Ondo, please? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me on the show. Hard to believe it's been 199 already. For background, I'm the president and CEO of Ondo. I'll get into Ondo in a second. Uh, just my quick personal background. I was a computer scientist, hacker turned finance person. Uh, and so crypto was very much up my alley when I came across Ethereum back in the 2015, 2016 timeframe. I ended up leaving my job as a uh, traditional quantitative portfolio manager at one of the larger hedge funds in the world and ended up going over to Goldman Sachs and running, uh, help running and building their digital assets team. From there, I left to help build Talos, which is one of the largest, if not the largest, trading technology infrastructure provider in crypto. Uh, and more recently, Emmett Ondo. Ondo essentially is really a very straightforward company, in my opinion. We are really just uh, an asset manager that brings traditional financial assets on chain. And so very much the, the topic of today, tokenization, we can get into all of that more from there. Uh, but I think the thing that separates us from others is that we're the only notable issuer, and by notable here, I mean you know north of 100 million in assets, um, where we both tokenize the assets and help develop the protocols that actually create utility for those tokens. And we can get into more of that later on. Amazing. And we're also joined by Vanessa Grillet, managing partner at Aglay Ventures. Quick introduction on you, Vanessa. Welcome to the show and what you do with Aglay Ventures. Thank you. Um, so Aglay Ventures is an early stage Web3 fund that focuses on decentralized protocols and market infrastructure. Quick background on myself before joining Aglay and heading up that effort, I was working at CoinFund and was one of the first employees at Consensus, where I stayed about five years and started my career in traditional finance. I was for over 10 years at the New York Stock Exchange, so very deep in the market infrastructure. Um, so it's really nice to see, you know, the decentralized world and the centralized world coming in together through RWAs. So excited to be here. Awesome. We're, we're joined by real OGs. That's great. So before we dive in, just as a reminder to our listeners, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they're representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So go do your own research. So let's define what RWAs are to get started. Tokenization of real-world assets RWAs, such as real estate, art, collectibles, gold, bonds, U.S. treasuries, allows you to trade, invest, and own tangible assets by putting its ownership on chain. 
Putting the value and ownership of physical assets on chain allows users to benefit from the speed, accessibility, and security of blockchain transactions. It can lower costs by removing the middleman typically involved in owning or transacting physical assets, enable 24-7 trading, and lower barriers to entry by fractionalizing the ownership into shares. So let's get started. I'm going to go with you, Catherine, first. Kick us off. So what are the, some of the main use cases of tokenized RWAs? How long has it been running? You know, what is the recent uptake on this? Why is this becoming so popular? Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is a really like a great topic to hard because um, there's a lot of implications because, you know, we, we look at this in the bigger umbrella of tokenization of things because essentially you can really tokenize anything, whether it's the money itself, whether it's the real estate supply chain, or even your handbag, right? Like there's anything that you can possibly do to bring onto the blockchain. And what's really interesting is I do think that in the past 12 months, we have seen this very specific uptick in the activities, not only just from the sort of the crypto communities, but also coming from the institutional side of things, you know, the likes of BlackRock, Fidelity, Franklin Templeton's, they're all kind of jumping into it. Now, I think what's really interesting is to think about why now, right? And uh, like, to what extent uh, this is something real that could enable something in the future. I do think like in your intro that there has been a lot of sort of frictions and, you know, we don't have 24-7 trading in a lot of the places. There's also just fragmentation when it comes to the capital market in the sense the stock exchange is different from the bond, different from the private equities, different from, you know, oil and trading. But imagine in the future, you can have this one single general platform that enables the trading and the tokenization of many different things on one single platform that could be quite interesting. So very excited of where this is heading. And I'm sure like as we're getting deeper into this um, discussion, you know, there's lots of macro sort of factors feeding into it as well that I think that the current timing is quite, uh, quite good in terms of thinking about what sort of assets you can bring on chain. Yeah, in, in that regard, uh, Vanessa, how, how does one compare between a traditional financial issued asset and the ones that are tokenized? Is there any difference in terms of the, the returns, the yield, the risks, the stability? What should be the kind of considerations when people think about tokenized RWAs? Yeah. So uh, I want to make a distinction on the tokenization process because, you know, we see a lot of banks doing a lot of, of things on private blockchains, and then we see tokenized assets on public blockchains. And this does not, it, it's different, and it does not allow you to do the same things. So I would say that if you tokenize um, something on a private chain, there is no interoperability with public chains. And basically, you you stay in your closed source environment, which means that you're able to add efficiency, you're able to reduce cost, but you're not able to interact with the public chains and leverage the open source environment of the public chains. When you talk about RWAs in the public chain, it's the idea that you take a real world asset, you tokenize it, it's represented as a token on the public chain, and therefore that token can move around in all the DeFi applications, et cetera, increase leverage. So if you think about sort of the returns and what you can do with those two types of tokens, they're different, 
The first one in the closed source environment will replicate the existing financial uh, rewards or yields. Uh, whereas when you're in the in the public blockchain, you can do a little bit more with your tokens and use them in additional leveraged positions or lending positions, et cetera. So it's more open on the public blockchain. I, I love that. I'm, I'm a big proponent of public blockchains. And it, it sounds like you're comparing a digital notary to a very advanced programmable asset. So it, it's really interesting, the, that comparison. I'm going to go with you, Justin. You're doing a lot work on the world of treasury. So what is what is different when someone has access to that type of asset on a traditional manner and what they can do once it's been tokenized via Ondo and what are the possibilities there? Yeah, it's a great point. And I think Vanessa makes a great distinction between sort of public blockchains and these private DLTs that are out there and sort of what the utility of them are. Generally speaking, I think the main motivation for tokenization in general is for the token to do something. I know that sounds incredibly cliche, but this this concept of tokenization is not new. I mean, the you know the idea of bringing real world assets on chain it definitely goes back at least five years, if not further. But the the main point really of the tokens is not just to represent some asset in token form and then move it around. You actually need to do something actually with those tokens, and so that. That, that compatibility in particular with the on-chain protocols is really, in my opinion, the major driver for something to be tokenized. And so we started with liquid commonplace financial assets like treasuries to tokenize because very much we believe there's real utility for these on-chain. So for example, three years ago, it was a you know zero interest rate environment. Now in you know Q4 of 2023 here, we are very much in a five plus percent interest rate where people think it's going to be higher for longer. The difference here really is that you have dollars on chain now that can offer yield. And so when you didn't really have any material yield in say T-bills, stablecoins, or at least stablecoins 1.0, the first version of stablecoins, really did almost everything that you would want sort of cash on chain to do. You know, you could use it as a short-term cash storage, you could use it as collateral for loans. You could use it as a settlement mechanism. As you know, we sort of return to a more historically normal interest rate environment. You know, not normal for those of us that are a little bit on the younger side, but those on the older side of finance remember much higher interest rates. So when your cash isn't actually in flight, there's actually all kinds of stuff you can do with it to actually manage that cash. And so, really, with Ondo, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel or do anything super complicated on chain. But what we are doing is bringing these traditional cash management tools into token form. So you can sort of think of these use cases as very similar in, in DeFi or on-chain finance, whatever you want to call it, to traditional finance. You have use cases of, I need to store this cash somewhere, or I need to pledge this as collateral for, say, margin trading, either on a protocol on-chain or at some centralized exchange where you're doing margin trading. The demand there from traders really is starting to be that, hey, while our dollars are pledged as collateral, we actually want them to be earning yield for us. And so the, the use cases here really are not at all dissimilar to what you would see in traditional finance. And we've had some early success with this, I think, partially just due to the simple fact that we actually think that these tokens have utility right here and now. And in terms of where RWAs are going and all kinds of interesting things, like Catherine obviously is well-versed in CBDCs, and there's all kinds of other things to tokenize in the world of, of the world's assets. Obviously, there's real estate, you know, there's stocks and bonds and 
currencies and art and all kinds of wonderful things. But we very much started just with these liquid commonplace assets that we thought would have utility, particularly within the DeFi protocols that exist. And, and certainly sort of the original RWA, really, it has been stable coins. You know, this idea of product market fit, I think, is a very, very, very important one, um, especially as we are still maybe in the latter stages of a bear market, but in the bear market broadly within crypto, that as a startup, you very much have to focus on what do we have in terms of product market fit right now. And undeniably, with crypto, there have been several major things um, that have product market fit. One, one is obviously Bitcoin itself has had, I think, pretty, pretty clear product market fit. And then the second really are these dollars on chain. Um, and so I think what we're seeing in particular with our approach to real world assets is this evolution of what we in traditional finance would call cash equivalents, what people in crypto call stable coins, but these dollar-like things that are on chain and being able to use them in these various different capacities that are people trying to use them, again, in this on-chain capacity. So that utility and that liquidity aspect of that, I think is a very, very important part of when to tokenize something and why. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things in the physical world that I tend to think that they are uh, good candidates, but but there is a big challenge in in nature. Um, we, we we talk about things becoming digital, the blend between physical and digital, and in the direction of turning something digital into something physical, it seems more plausible and more controlled because we can prove provenance. In, in, in very unique ways in, with the use of blockchains. But when you're in the real world where proving provenance and the physicality of things is hard to ensure, bringing them on a digital side, meaning tokenizing something that is physical, seems to have its own particular set of challenges, right? The financial world by and large is, if not fully digital, digitized. So it's easier when you're in the same realm of nature to kind of do that. Now, when thinking about someone, let's say, let's say a, 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 a bank or a financial services firm that is starting to look into tokenizing some of their assets to start playing around in that space, what are some of the pros and cons that they have to take into account as they move into their world? What, what changes in the nature of the things that they have to manage and how would one start playing with it. I'm going to go with you, Vanessa, first. What are the considerations? What are the pros and cons around tokenizing RWAs in the current state of affairs? We're not, we're not looking into the future yet, but you know, right now, if I want to start dabbling into this, what do I need to consider in my pro and con analysis? I think every large organization and every, every bank has a lot of moving parts, right? And uh, a lot of regulatory constraints. So I think the first step is really understanding your capabilities in terms of like the technical capabilities, the teams that can work on these things. And then think about the network that you're gonna use if you're gonna build it yourself, if you're gonna use a third party. And that has a lot of implications and also a lot of implications on startups because you know, if you use a third party, then it's harder to just move around your, your existing infrastructure. So we see a lot of large players developing things in-house so that they have full control of, of any risk and any regulatory risk also around that. And then, you know, if you're on the blockchain, either you work with other parties. Um, so, for example, JPM, who worked with Barclays, 
using their network or you do intra-group, you know, uh, efficient, uh, more efficient uh, tokenization projects. So it really depends where you want to be in the future. You can start small and, you know, start with internal sort of offsets using the blockchain, et cetera, and then move to working with other players who are also want to, to do that. But you always have to take into account that it's going to be harder when you, you bring in third parties. But that's also the power of, of blockchain is really to have this global settlement layer and um, similar information that you can share instantly and make payments instant, right? So it's a trade-off. It really depends on your level of maturity and also, of course, the where you understand the, the opportunity is. Interesting. Interesting. And, uh, you know, talking about intermediaries, uh, we were promised by the blockchain, the entity called blockchain, that we would be able to disintermediate financial services. By and large, what we're seeing is very smart people creating better intermediaries, replacing some very slow and old-fashioned <laughs> intermediaries and creating a lot more value by leveraging that technology. Catherine, you're doing a lot of work with Visa on the tokenized uh, cash, as, as Justin was, was mentioning. What is the, the landscape in terms of intermediaries? Do, do you perceive that when you tackle that front using digital assets, it streamlines the process and the level of streamlining, is it is it a positive offset with the removal of the intermediaries you would have otherwise? What what is what is that trade-off you're seeing as you develop those things? That's a very interesting question. Um because I think for sure there's there's always gonna be the trade-offs in between these kind of decision makings. I think when it comes to the tokenization of cash and cash like instruments Inevitably, we're operating under all sorts of regulations and rules and such. I think the key question is, therefore, how, how do you prove that you're complying? How do you bring the trust? What role, therefore, can intermediaries bring the value into all of this mixed? And I think fundamentally, if we're looking at you know payments, whether it's tokenization of bank deposits, tokenization of central bank money, tokenization of just any other fiat money, when it comes to payments, inevitably, you need the set of rules, you need the set of standards to make things happen. And I think a, a key role that intermediaries play in between all of that is a matter of coordination game in a way that you're coordinating between, you know, the, the financial institutions, with our network, with the regulators, with the end users, but somehow we all follow the same set of rules and standards and there are checkpoints that is injected by the intermediaries to provide. Now, of course, there's also many more things to that in the sense if you're thinking about value-added services, you know, blockchain by itself does not provide consumer protection, does not provide fraud checks and stuff. And this is where, again, intermediaries that could create these extra services for the end users become something interesting. So I think, yes, to a certain extent, if blockchain completely decentralized as a piece of technology, I think it's it's very nice in principle. But if you're looking at product-related stuff, this is where you know the role of intermediary, how we can apply what we've learned in today's world and bring the best practices into the future. This is how we're thinking about it. Yeah, I think I think Justin, you know, the way you described Ondo to me sounds like you're actually bridging access from these 
institutions to a new world of functionality, because that I think that's where you used or utility. Is this the, the type of intermediary? And I'm 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 naming Ondo as one, but it's smart intermediary, as I said before, that can bridge that gap in in expanding adoption. And when you do that, what are the types of responsibilities such an intermediary ends up carrying? Yeah, I think there's sort of like several things to unpack there. I think the argument about the eventual promise of blockchain of being sort of cheaper and better is pretty clear to most people. I think we are still in the zero to one phase for a lot of different use cases and a lot of different companies, et cetera, where it is actually quite expensive for them to do what they want to do on chain just because there's novelty in building out these various different things. There's an educational component that the educational component is so much better than it was, say, five years ago, but still there's, there's this novelty here. You know, there's a great article that was published by, I think it was EY, and they basically said, how much extra yield would you need to buy a T-bill on chain? And the question, the answer was roughly like five to 20 bips was like the error bars, but people do not see it as cheaper. And, and frankly, I don't think it is cheaper right now. And so sort of our argument is that you actually really need to use the tokens and be relatively crypto native, frankly, for this to make sense right now. You know, I still think we are super early stages. I know that's incredibly cliche to say. But that said, there is a way to do this, and we think there is a legal compliant way to do this. The tricky part about this for the crypto native people is they're not super familiar with the complexities of what it means to issue assets and do that in a way that is compliant in various different jurisdictions. You have to think about securities law, you have to think about derivatives law, you have to think about tax law. And these are not things that a lot of people understand. And so with the complexity of doing that, doing that business in the United States, what a lot of crypto native companies have done is they've just sort of like thrown their hands up and said, I don't understand this. And so I'm just going to go offshore. And I think one of our particular advantages is we have this background of coming from banking, coming from traditional finance. One of the really, really amazing things that I had the benefit of while I was at Goldman Sachs is I had access to a lot of the world's best financial lawyers. And I would ask them lots of frankly, looking back, kind of stupid questions, and I thank them for their patience along the way. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like I, you know, even me as a finance person didn't fully understand how, you know, clearing works, what a CSD is, what a registered clearing agent is, what a transfer agent is, the difference between sort of banking and being a broker dealer, <laughs> the registered investment advisor, you know, so there's just a tremendous amount of like legal financial regulatory education that I think the, the the public blockchain ecosystem is getting up to speed on. But I have no doubt that in the long run, this will be sort of better, faster, cheaper. And so one of the things that we focus on is not just, hey, look, your dollars can earn yield now, but also very much bringing best practices from traditional finance, namely investor protections into, into these tokens. You know, so we back our tokens one-to-one, -one. you know, there's no underlying leverage. Uh, the real world assets are held at regulated counterparties. Um, you know, we are extremely conservative. We basically only invest in treasuries and in some cases, bank deposits, but all these bank deposits themselves are at least investment grade. And very, very importantly, we also make sure that all of the reserves backing the tokens are held separate in separate companies, not our operating company. Um, and this is just one of several sort of facts and circumstances that you do 
in order to design the entity to be bankruptcy remote. You're obviously, knock on wood, we're very much not planning for Ando Finance Inc., our parent company, to go bankrupt. But in the case that it is, we followed all of the best practices of making sure that the actual client assets wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be consolidated in that event. And so we have things like third-party oversight. We have daily attestations from uh, trust companies that are effectively have read-only access to all our accounts and basically publish what they think the actual value of these things are. And then very much, you know, I think the, the, there is a way of making these things be regulatory compliant within the United States. But again, there is just that sort of complexity of doing so that is very difficult. And there are real material commercial trade-offs that you need to make. You know, I think everybody wants to make these tokens that are just permissionless and accessible to U.S. retail. But in general, that is a very tricky thing to do. And I think that we will eventually get there and we will eventually be able to issue these tokens. These are likely going to be what are called 40 Act tokens in the United States. But I think we also have to remember to go sort of one step at a time and make sure that the technologists and the people building on this new technology aren't just leaving all of the traditional stuff behind. We actually need to make sure that everybody is on board. And even, <laughs> even relatively recently, you know, Ando was mentioned in a, a Federal Reserve working paper of, you know, they see public blockchain as potentially creating this interconnectedness that is they see as you know potentially a risk, which I think is fair. But in particular, you know, we have to be mindful of all of these things as we're building this technology that we have to do so in a way that is is responsible. Um, and so when you're dealing with these real world assets, they're going to be encumbered by complexity around legal regulatory, around tax, and structuring things in the right way, I think is extremely, extremely important. But the, you know, it is very doable, I think. You know, I, I think that that one of the things is that you know, it's not impossible, it is doable, but it requires a particular expertise. Yeah, I think it's a, a fair reminder to our DGENs uh, listeners that there are issues in the current TradFi, but you don't need to throw the baby with the bathwater, right? You can improve on what exists, leverage the technology. And, and the good thing about RWAs is that there is an underlying asset for which there is already a regulation. So let's not forget that you're bringing in to a new technology something that already exists. So you're not reinventing the wheel when you're doing that. Just make sure that you're aware of the surroundings. We're going to wrap for now and take a quick pause here to hear from our sponsors. And we'll be back very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibilities, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Consumers can now enjoy the freedom and flexibility of using their Visa crypto link cards for everyday purchases at millions of Visa-accepting merchant locations around the world. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Hey folks, we have super duper exciting news. The shortlist for this year's 11FS Awards is officially live. We asked you, the incredible FinTech Insider community, to help us choose the deserving winners of the 11FS Awards, and your response was outstanding. You voted in record numbers, and it's now time to see if your favorite fintech companies made the shortlist. With a total of 10 different awards up for grabs on the big night, including categories like best experience design, fintech for good, best use of AI, and consumer game changer, there is a lot to look forward to. Don't wait. Explore that full shortlist now at 11fsawards.com. That is 11fsawards.com. 
www.thepodcastbrand.com and be sure to stay tuned to all of our channels to find out who will take home one of the coveted 11FS award trophies on Wednesday, 15th of November. Welcome back. Now that we've dug into the pros and cons of tokenization of real-world assets, let's talk a little bit about how the space will grow, how it will evolve as it's almost at the intersection of decentralized finance and traditional finance. So I'm handing it over to you, Catherine. Yeah, thanks. I, I think certainly this is a, it's very important, right? Because I think it's going to really affect both the growth of DeFi as well as TradFi. So let's maybe probably start with the DeFi side of things and starting with you, Justin. Like, you know, I think in the intro that you mentioned briefly, you described what we've seen today is stablecoin 1.0. So from your point of view, right, how do you see that future stablecoin 2.0 or 3.0 version should grow uh, specifically of the sort of stuff that you are activating? And also perhaps put that into the context of everything else, i.e. coming from the CBDC, coming from the banks, doing tokenization of deposits. How do you think the space is going to evolve with respect to the real world assets? Yeah, I mean, incredibly difficult to predict, undoubtedly. I think that you know, stablecoins 2.0, um, I sort of dislike using that term because at least in the United States, there's no legal regime at the federal level for stablecoins. So, but yeah, the un undeniably stablecoin 1.0 will be around for a long time. I actually do think they have real utility in particular, if you're moving money around, it's still a very, very efficient way of doing uh, settlements, payments, uh, remittances, whatever, however you want to think about it. In, in terms of, you know, the broader question of where things are going, I do think there'll be a pretty material demand for what crypto people call these yield-bearing stablecoins. You know, I would prefer to call you know tokenized cash equivalent. You know, potato, potato. I'm not here to decide on on nomenclature, but very much when you're using your capital, you want to be extremely efficient with it. And I think this is something that in, in finance is almost too obvious to point out. But again, in this macro environment that we have, you know, we're, you're just missing out on an incredible amount of yield by not having your assets in, in a yield-bearing asset. And so I think that is that is very, very fundamental. And so we're starting to see major traders who are holding capital on exchanges, wanting to make sure that they're, they're squeezing all of the yield juice they can out of those assets. And so these quote-unquote yield-bearing stablecoins are a, a, a very interesting alternative for them that helps them achieve their actual financial goals. In terms of the actual DeFi utility broadly, I think this is very much an area where reasonable people can disagree about where all this is going. I think one of the very interesting parts about this whole space is that to get real utility from these tokens, you actually really need to use DeFi-like protocols. And the regulatory status around these DeFi protocols is by far one of the biggest question marks out there. But there's interesting approaches to this, um, and I'm not definitely not an expert in any of this, so I would just sort of defer to our other panelists here in terms of contribution here. But I think that's sort of like one of the existential questions around tokenization and DeFi and its future in general is, can we get comfortable, we meaning sort of humans and, and, tr and traditional finance, especially institutional finance, is institutional finance ever going to get comfortable with using DeFi protocols where your counterparty really is a potentially semi-anonymous pool of capital. And some people would say, no, never. And then I, I sort of hearken this back by analogy to really where we were technologically 
30 years ago, and bear with me on this journey for a second, to the original internet and the challenges the original internet had really with things like privacy and being able to send messages in a way that was secure. And secure here means like, I, I, you know it's coming from me or I've encrypted my message in flight. So you know, not the entire world can read my email that I'm sending back and forth to you. And in the beginning of the internet, encryption was regulated effectively as a war munition. So it was literally Ill illegal to publish code and send it out there. Not, I mean, some de some definition of illegal. Maybe treasonous illegal. I think is pretty bad illegal. But effectively, like if you were writing a web browser in like 1991 and you were sending that web browser internationally, you were potentially committing a crime. And throughout the the 90s, that that regulation around encryption on the internet softened significantly to the point where e-commerce came around and everybody was actually able to encrypt their credit cards as it was in flight. And so there wasn't just massive fraud because everybody was just stealing everybody's credit card. And I think one of the existential questions here around DeFi is, hey, do we get to that point with money? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I think that's a very existential question. And the challenge here really is that the main thing, at least in the United States, is the Bank Secrecy Act. The Bank Secrecy Act applies to what are called financial institutions. This is a, a term of art, so it does not. Again, I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice, uh, but it does not apply to you as an individual. If you, as an individual, go on online and do P2P DeFi, you are not bound by the Bank Secrecy Act. You're not a financial institution. If you're an enterprise, probably similar. But if you are a financial institution of any kind, you almost certainly are. And I think that is the existential question here around, can we really get to a point where there's these semi-anonymous pools of capital, that institutional people are inter interacting with. I just wanted to jump in in the sense that I find it very interesting what you said, because, and to me, I feel like in many ways, you know, the, the existence or the growth of the real world assets um, more recently is sort of bringing the DeFi and TradFi closer together in the sense that it's not really about DeFi versus TradFi, because yes, I totally agree. You want to use the protocols, the decentralization aspects coming from that, but really you need the whole framework of regulation to really, sort of like com combine the best of both worlds, so to speak, and to really get something real out of that. And I think with that in mind, I'm curious to hear in terms of, you know, what's driving the growth of the current, whether it's uh, in TradFi or DeFi coming from that, what's driving the growth for real world assets? It sounds like right now that a lot of these are really by the crypto traders who have already capital on chain. To what extent, I'm curious, maybe Vanessa, you can you can provide some data on this, that you're seeing the TradFi, whether it is the sort of the trading desk coming from Goldman and you know, other other places, or are you, uh, is this still like a TBD at, at this present moment in time? I think uh, currently uh, RWA is still with the crypto native, the on-chain RWA, and the closed source RWA is very much, is, is picking up a lot of speed, but is staying within the large institutions. So, Yes, there has been a growth, but the numbers are, are really small today. And I think there's a macro and a kind of a micro situation here. The macro is that, you know, these RWAs are just trying to replicate treasuries and treasury yields. So why go through the pain of going on chain is a legitimate question. And then on the micro side, I think we need to see more platforms that capture communities of vetted traders and with white label addresses. And I think 
the entities who are able to vet these uh, these traders from traditional finance and offer rails um, to interact and DeFi in a compliant way will succeed in, uh, in helping the growth of, of RWAs. But until that happens, it's going to be a tough value prop, you know, and uh, I, I think we're all excited about having the, the yield from the treasuries, but one, I don't think that's going to stay for, for that long. And so is RWA just, you know, coming back during the bear market because, you know, it's, it's something that's like kind of a comfort zone and an easy, easy way into to DeFi. So we'll see mm-hmm. with the evolution of the macro uh, if that trend continues. I know the last bear market was really when RWAs emerge and, and this idea that, you know, DeFi and public chains are not the real world as opposed to trading the real world is something that is quite foreign to me because, you know, blockchains are innovation and technologies, token mm-hmm. systems that, that you trade in de- independently, right? Absolutely. And um, I do, I, I, like, maybe just kind of jumping to the TradFi side, because clearly, you know, they themselves are trying to, whether you can call it in terms of making incremental improvement to the backend and really trying to testing with these sort of blockchain solution, where they're trying to really open up brand new sort of capital market for them slightly challenging question maybe for you both in the sense like you know if and when say coming from the new york stock exchange or coming from like the black rock of the world really going at scale to start revamping their own products and bring these things on chain what is that implication therefore back to the startups of the world such as ondo such as open eden today who are trying to replicate these traditional asset classes on chain i mean how do you guys see the dynamics going to play out and that might be i don't know when but you know like in the medium to long term yeah um so i think we'll see that we'll definitely see large market infrastructure move into tokenized assets um so we saw that gtcc just uh, acquired security we see uh, that Goldman and JPM are, have developed their own tokenization engines. And I think that the large uh, stock exchanges and derivatives exchanges are really watching closely this. The issue is what type of tokens are they going to transfer those assets to, right? You know, I think ICE with BACT and T0 are, are basically you know, having a closed source equivalent of a token, but you can't do really anything with it, right? So it's the equivalent of of the financial instrument that already exists. So what is the benefit for them to tokenize these assets and what platform and what environment are these assets going to be able to trade on? And are you going to be able to use them or pledge them in a way in the in the open source blockchain environment. And I think there needs to be that link in order for um, tokenization to really work and actually you know, produce some benefits other than just um, efficiencies for uh, the incumbents. Yeah, I mean I, I mean, I think that the real point here is that 
I think everybody sort of believes the world's financial assets are going to be tokenized. Um, and I think that the only real solution here is a public blockchain. You know, I, I don't think these private DLTs actually have much interesting technology at all, frankly. The main point is we need to bring the best new technology to the best practices from finance, protect investors, etc. But very much like the, the problem with TradFi is there's different rails for different assets in different countries. The whole point is put all these assets on the same rail. You know, so we at Ando are taking traditional assets, putting them on a new rail. We're sort of the opposite of the, the spot Bitcoin ETF where they're taking assets from the new rail and then wrapping them up in ETFs. You know, I think people think of tokens as ETFs 2.0. Um, I think that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of truth to that. But yeah, very much, you know, we are very early stages. There's, you know, we're just starting at the beginning. We're bringing very commonplace liquid financial assets on chain. We think that's a great place to start, but we think the future is bright for tokenization on public blockchain. So Mauricio, maybe ending that on a high note, and I know that, you know, this, we're, we're near time. So in a sense, like clearly we're seeing the, the mainstream adoption hasn't happened yet, but what do you think is going to keep you optimistic about the next step of the future of how we can go from where we're at today to kind of getting into more broader stream and, you know, kind of retail investors who are not necessarily have to be the crypto savvy people only. What, what do you think is going to take us there? I hope this is a hope. <laughs> and I'm going to unearth a 2022 term that died out in 23 is the metaverse, but not the metaverse we saw in gaming and speculation. There's a good chunk of work being done on the industrial metaverse where those utilities and efficiencies that Justin was mentioning are very much perceived when you talk about an assembly line, integrating suppliers, the whole clearing settlement between everything that happens in a factory at or in a supply chain for that matter at the atomic level with self-liquidating assets, turning digital barter, something possible, traceable, valuable, and controlled. It's, it's probably where this tokenization of real-world assets is going to be flourishing more. And then it underlies and underpins all the other financial instruments that we talked about here today, because that's real economy. That is the whole digital thing we we're talking about in a very sensible and, and tangible way. So I, I would hope that we don't constrain the innovation we're talking about just to financial services, but we use the power of financial services and the degree of penetration financial services has across all the other industries to bring forth the power of tokenizing real-world assets in ways that make in industry 4.0, that is a term from, I don't know, maybe the late 90s, to fruition finally, because now we can, and the technology is here. So I think that is a very promising area. I've, I've seen a few reports coming early this year about the industrial metaverse. I wrote a little bit about it. And I feel that when we blend open blockchains with on-chain data protection and the underlying assets of this extended value chain from financial services to industries and beyond, I think we're going to see a lot of efficiencies and in, in the opportunity for smart intermediaries as we were talking about earlier. So... Yeah, that is that is still hope, but but there is great indication that that's where the the technology and the utility is going to emerge. 
All right. So that kind of wraps up the discussion. I know we could go on for hours, and it's uh, amazing that we were able to kind of dabble into this a little bit. Thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, where can people find more about you and your companies? I'm going to go with you, Justin. Yeah, thanks very much, Blockchain Insider, for having for having me, for having Ando. Yeah, I don't do much social media, but you can find Ando on the web at ando.finance or on Twitter at, at andofinance. Good. Vanessa? Find me on LinkedIn, just my first and last name, Vanessa Grillet at aglaeventures.com or on Telegram, just my first and last name again, Vanessa Grillet. Thank you. Catherine? Visa.com and uh, also on X, underscore and LinkedIn as well. So and You can find me on X at 0x Mauricio, Mauricio Magaldi on LinkedIn. And you can always find us at 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you can't wait until the next episode, take a look at the many previous episodes in our catalog and get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider or email us at podcasts at 11FS.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.